In Matthew chapter 15, this, I mean, just for a word of reminder, Matthew chapter 14, as we've been going through for the last few weeks, it really only encompasses a couple of days. The whole chapter of Matthew 14 likely only, only covers a couple of days of Jesus' ministry. Um, it starts with John the Baptist being beheaded. The report of that makes its way to Jesus. Now, who knows how long it took for the report to get to Jesus. But the report gets to Jesus. He feeds the 5,000. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus heals the sick in, in, a, in, the, in the land of Gennesaret. And all of this is happening over a couple of days. And now, in chapter 15, we're starting a new chapter, verse 1, uh, we find Jesus involved in a conversation with some Pharisees and scribes, or in other words, religious leaders, um, the affluent of society in Jewish culture. And we have to keep in mind that it was only a couple days ago that John the Baptist was beheaded. And... We've talked before in relation to the ministry of John the Baptist that his baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now, you may be wondering what we're talking about. Why are we talking about John the Baptist again? Well, we'll get there. I'm, I'm going to get there. Um, maybe for some context here, let's read the passage first, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into this introduction involving John the Baptist. Matthew 15, verse 1 says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Sounds like most parents. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the words of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that we would have humility and a spirit of submission to see what you have for us in this very powerful message here. Um, just give us guidance by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I mentioned just moments ago that John the Baptist, his ministry was a ministry of repentance. That is, attorney, he was, he was here before Jesus' ministry started, 
He was ministering to the nation, trying to get the nation to turn back to Jehovah or Yahweh God. Because they had gone off on their own, they were doing their own thing, they were, you know, in this passage, we see they were establishing their own traditions, or they were just doing whatever was right in their own mind. They had deviated from the actual word of God. And his ministry was a ministry of trying to call the nation back to honoring God as he had revealed himself in his word. Because only if they were to return to such a state would they ever recognize the Messiah when he came. That is how John the Baptist was preparing the way for the nation to receive the Messiah. But here we enter into a scene where the Pharisees are expressing exactly what John was trying to call the nation away from. They had deviated from the Word of God and had started replacing the Word of God with their own doctrines. They had made up stuff that weren't actually in the Bible. They were holding people accountable to things that were not actually in the Bible. And they were judging men and women and children alike by things that were not actually in the Bible. They did not honor God. That's why Jesus lays forth his very pointed rebuke. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. John the Baptist's ministry was essentially to remind the nation what the Lord actually required of them, which can be beautifully summarized if you turn to Micah chapter 6, verse 6. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 say... With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now keep in mind, these were things required in the law of God. <laughs> but verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now that was not required of God in the law. <laughs> Child sacrifice. But in verse 8, he has, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? I mean, Micah summarizes a lot of what the law actually states very well. I mean, if you read through the laws given by the hand of Moses, a lot of them really deal with these categories of justice, mercy, and humility before God. So he's really summarizing what does it mean to glorify God, to love justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with Him. And then he goes on, if we go down to verse 9, he says... <clears throat> The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in this house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I quit, acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies in your tongue. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. 
Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be a hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. In other words, here, in this latter portion of this, of this reading that we just had, he's describing that their deviations from the Word of God has caused them, who seek success, to, to continue to seek success, but they're never actually going to be able to reap. Or if they even do reap, what they do reap is never going to satisfy them. Why? Because they had strayed from the Word of God. Not because they had become really bad at farming all of a sudden, but because they had deviated from the Word of God. So God, even if He let them reap a harvest, they were never going to be able to be satisfied by it. Because they had turned their back on God. They had turned their back on the ways of God. Even though God had told them what He wanted from them. John the Baptist's plea in his ministry to return to the revealed ways of God can be seen, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 3, we can see a sermon that he had written that summarized what he was trying to call the people of Israel to. In in Luke, Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1, in the 15th year, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, What a great start to a sermon. (laughs) You brood of vipers. (laughs) But it was, I mean, he wasn't exaggerating. Who warned you to to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what, shall then, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff will be burnt, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we see here, John the Baptist is being very powerful in how he addresses the nation of Israel. John's reference here at the very end, he references a winnowing fork being part of the ministry of the Christ who is to come up after him. A winnowing fork would be somewhat like a, like a, a pitchfork that you would grab the grain, throw it up into the air, let the wind kind of drive all the chaff away so that what falls to the ground is pure. It is useful. It is, it is good and useful for, gra- for, for bread. And he is, John the Baptist, he is describing the ministry of Christ as a, a purifying ministry, a purging ministry of dividing the wise from the fools, the faithful from the unfaithful. Separating the good from the evil and the worthless. Why am I referencing these things? Well, I think it might become more apparent as we continue through this message. We find ourselves in a passage about a religious concern that you and I hardly relate to as it was a tradition that was held held 2,000 years ago. And one of the reasons we find very little um, relation to is because it's not actually found in the Scriptures. Perhaps we would recognize it if the Scriptures actually talked about it. But we find ourselves with Jesus confronting some... Well, the Pharisees first confront Jesus and his disciples for not following their tradition. And Jesus then confronts them for being fools, for establishing a tradition and requiring that people hold to that tradition when God says absolutely nothing about it. And we talk about John the Baptist because John the Baptist was there to purify the people in the sense that they need to return to the word of God and let it be enough and to actually follow the word of God, not the words of men. In vain, currently, they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We must look to ourselves. Are we like these fools who have a form of godliness, but really we are spoken of as Isaiah's, our worship is vain. Why? Because our religiosity has nothing to do with the word of God. It is all about the standards and the traditions that have been passed down by people. Many different denominations, religions, they are littered with traditions and activity that the Bible does not actually command. That's just not in there. And these type of people worship in vain. Why? Because they have replaced the commandments of God with the doctrines by men that we have cleverly devised with our own minds that we think, you know, these things are probably, maybe there were some good intentions of helping people walk with God. You know, the Pharisees, I mean, they get a bad rap in the scripture because by the time Jesus approaches the Pharisees, the, the position had deteriorated so much and replaced God and his word when really the Pharisees were established in order to help provide guidance and direction for the people in the absence of 
of a theocracy or a, a monarch because they had been under Roman rule. They had no prophets. They had no king. They still had the priests, but they were, I mean, they were a shell of what they used to be in the Old Testament. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, they were established in order to help guide the people in the absence of all of these people that should have been guiding them. But the position had deteriorated to such a degree that they had replaced the Word of God with their own teachings. And we must take care that we do not find ourselves in such a position where 2,000 years removed from Christ, that's a lot of years to deteriorate if we're not careful. That's a lot of years of looking back at traditions of people that, we, that have tried to, perhaps they had good intentions. They tried to set up traditions to help the church follow God. But perhaps sometimes we can look at all these things that may have been good ideas at some point, and we can start treating them like they're Scripture. When they're not Scripture, we need to return to the Word of God and see what God has actually spoken, rather than holding people accountable to things that we simply think are good for me that aren't actually in the Scriptures. Sure, anybody can tie a preference to a scriptural passage, but if the Scripture has not commanded your preference, then it is simply a preference and it needs to be taken with a very low priority. Now, the specific situation that Jesus is dealing with is this issue of, of hand-washing. Now, this was something that Jewish the Jewish elite would, had devised in order to, you know, I think it was initially to try to help people and, you know, looking at the different nuances and implications that you can kind of get out of the law. But they, they had all these rules about washing hands. People were supposed to wash their hands when they woke up. They were supposed to pour water over their hands three times in order to remove any evil spirits that clung to them while they slept. They were supposed to wash their hands prior to praying or after touching sweat from their own body. They were supposed to wash their hands after cutting their fingernails after using the restroom, leaving a burial place. They're supposed to wash their hands before eating bread um, or anything that could absorb a liquid. Um, and the priests were supposed to wash their hands prior to giving a blessing to any person. I mean, these were all hand washings that were added to the Word of God that were not found in the Word of God. The priests did have a ceremonial hand washing they needed to do while serving in the temple, but that, was, um, that had its own implications that were fulfilled in Christ. But all of these other hand washings were added to the scriptures um, and were being required of people. And the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and saying, they were astonished. Why would your disciples not wash their hands before they eat according to the, to the you notice they say, according to the traditions of the elders? It didn't phase them that they weren't saying according to the law of our God. It didn't even phase them that they weren't referencing God himself. They were referencing their own traditions. And to the Pharisees, to neglect this practice could result in banishment from temple worship. They banished people for not following these extra-biblical rules. One reason for washing the hands prior to eating is that... <clears throat> You know, in, just in case any of the food that was prepared was prepared near something that could have been deemed unclean. Okay, so there's a little bit of law mixed in with that because they weren't supposed to touch unclean things. They weren't supposed to eat unclean animals or other types of foods. Part of where it came from was to try to keep the people really safe. 
just in case their bread was fixed on the same cutting board that somebody had chopped pork on or something like that. Um, and there was a rabbi from the second century who writes, bodily cleanliness leads to ritual purity. Now, does that sound kind of familiar, like a familiar statement? That's where we get the this, this statement, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's where it comes from. It comes from this tradition that the Pharisees had. Ultimately, that's where it comes from. Cleanliness is next to godliness because the Jewish belief was bodily cleanliness. When you wash your hands with, with water, it leads to ritual purity. And the people were held to such a high standard by the religious leaders that it was almost unbearable just hand-washing <laughs> of all the things, not to mention all the other traditions that they were held to. And the Pharisees would have believed that they would receive a measure of a purity from sin and acceptability before God by means of this ritual. Now, Christ addresses their error. Now, to get to the to, to work our way more through this passage, Christ addresses their error in two different ways. The first way that we see him addressing their error in this passage is that he rebukes them for preferring the traditions of men to the revealed word of God. We see that in verses 3 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 20, he rebukes the idea that a man can achieve any sort of merit with God through a tradition or a ritual. Now let's get, let's get to this real quick here. Okay, so number one, the traditions of men <clears throat> allowed for parts of God's revealed word to be disobeyed or diminished. He says to the Pharisees, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you have, would have gained from me is given to God. He is, then he basically he's set free from having to honor his parents. Okay, so the idea here is children were required to help support their parents. I mean, as much as it's a good thing today for a child to support their parents, especially in, their, in an older age, it was almost a, it was the law really made it um, a, a necessary part of life. You know, you're worse than an infidel if you cannot care for your own family, basically, is what the idea was. To be, and I think that's a, I think that's biblical. But the Pharisees' tradition, they had established a tradition where if a child didn't want to take care of their parents, they didn't want to honor their parents. They want, they had a loophole for getting out of following the law of God. They could just say, you know what, the money that I have, it's for the ministry, it's for the temple, you know, which the people are required to give a tithe to the temple. But the priority of God. To, love, to walk justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. The priority of God was the care of people rather than the tithe. If there was one or the other, it was supposed to be the care or the pe care of the people because that was God's priority. In, order, in fact, the tithe to the temple was devoted to the care of people. If you really look into tithe law, it wasn't just something that w was absorbed by an establishment. It was something that the, the temple received, provided for the priests and the Levites because they had no inheritance in the land, and a portion of that was supposed to be given to the poor and the needy among them in the nation. In fact, if there were you know, towns that were far away from the temple, they could give their tithe one time, of a, time, one time of the year, and there would be a collection in the city, and that city would give all of that collection to the poor. 
That was something that was done with tithe. Tithe was not simple as in just give 10% to the temple. It was not that simple. It was for the care of the people, even when you did drop it in the temple offering. It was for the care of the people who needed it. It was not for programs and other types of things. And the Pharisees, nevertheless, this was not supposed to turn into a thing on tithing. The Pharisees were giving people loopholes by their traditions. You can call something Corbin or devoted to God and not have to take care of your parents. You can get out of that. And Jesus is rebuking them for them for this. If you want to look here, look at Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 11 to 13 say, And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. Now, to begin, this little portion is talking about it really doesn't matter if the people read the Word of God. They're not going to follow it. They're not going to understand it because they don't want to. They don't actually want to follow God. They just want to be there for the synagogue reading. They just want, they want to hear the words, receive a blessing from the reading of the Word of God, but they have no intention of actually following it, so they might as well not even hear it because that's the way they're going to live their life. They're going to live their life as though they don't really care about the Word of God, even though they act like they care about the Word of God. They come to church every Sunday because they want to hear from the Word of God, but then all throughout the week, they have no concern for what God actually wants from them. That's what he's saying. Verse 13, it says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And then he goes on and talks about blessings for the faithful and cursings for the people who do not follow after God. Verse 19 says, The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. The meek are actually going to receive a blessing from God because why? They're going to approach the God, the Word of God. They're going to submit to the Word of God. They're going to follow the Word of God. It was prophesied by Isaiah that the Messiah would come and preach the good news to the poor. Why? Because the poor are actually going to receive it. The rich, the powerful, the proud, they will hear it, but they might as well not hear it because it's not going to make any difference. How many times do we hear the Word of God, read the Word of God? How much does the Word of God seep into our daily lives, but we don't actually live according to the Word of God? We just live according to what we think is good, what we think is a good way to live. We can't look to much of the way we choose to live our life and put a scripture passage to it. We just live in a way that's good to me. It includes going to church. Sure, great. What good is the church if we're not actually living according to the word of God? Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 28 says, And I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might shall come to an end, and the mountains of Israel shall be desolate, that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord, 
when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of their abominations that they have committed. As for you, son of man, your people who walk together, who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Again, he's describing a people who they come and they want to hear what the Word of God says. They're coming for a blessing. They're coming for encouragement. But when they hear what the Word of God says, they have no intention of actually following it. Their worship is in vain, and they will be destroyed. They will not be blessed along with the faithful. Because they come and they hear, they want to be part of it, but they want no part of it. Of what it actually says. Back to Matthew chapter 15. The second portion of, of, this, of this rebuke. First, we, we saw that the traditions of men, or the people are rebuked for preferring the traditions of men to the revealed Word of God. They had no concern for the Word of God. They just wanted to follow what they thought was good in their own eyes. And now we're going to see this portion that where Jesus rebukes the idea that a man can achieve any sort of merit with God through a tradition or a ritual. So Matthew 15, starting in verse 10. And he called the people to him, and he said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, like Jesus would care that he offended the Pharisees? since the Pharisees had offended so many of his own people. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said to him, Please explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now this is the, the assumption of the Pharisees what, was that man can achieve merit by following religious duty. But Jesus is teaching man achieves no merit or grace by means of religious activity. Any teaching that infers otherwise is false teaching. 1 John chapter 2 says... And we have to refer to the Word of God in these things because there are many of these things that are taught and are very popular today. That we receive grace and merit before God by doing certain traditions. This is still prevalent throughout the churches that claim the name of God today. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation. You know what that means? That He is the one who has taken away all of our sins. He is the one who paid all the penalty for our sins. He is the one who has established all grace to be sufficient for our faith in God. 
He has achieved it. He is the propitiation for all of our sins. Christ is sufficient for merit. And then in verse 3, 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. When we walk with God and keep the word of God as it is written, that is how we know that we have actually come to know to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the evidence. That is not the way that we merit the grace of God. We know that we have already come to know the grace of God because we take the word of God and we submit to it and we walk in it. Because in order to receive the grace of God, one must submit his way to God and say, God, you are the sufficient giver of life. That is submission and that is necessary for faith. Faith is seeing and submitting to what is actually real. It is not a a religious duty. It is not a religious activity. It is simply a a place of submission to what God has said. And that person who is able to do that for saving faith is also going to do that for life. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, says... For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, not the washing of hands, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So he is telling, so Paul is telling Titus, to insist on the teachings of the grace and the mercy and the sufficiency of Christ so that they can be prepared for every good work. First, you accept the all-sufficiency of Christ. Your confidence is in the all-sufficient work of Christ on the cross. And then after that, you live a life that corresponds with the submission that you claim in faith. And this is supposed to be insisted on. Why? So that the people do not turn astray from it. It is so easy in our human condition to turn astray from the sufficiency of Christ. To start thinking, well, I don't really feel very sufficient or holy or pure. So I'm going to set up these traditions to to kind of say that they're going to purify me. And they're going to initiate a a deeper walk with God. Um, That's not, that is deviating from the sufficiency of Christ. Only in putting our faith in the sufficiency of Christ can we know the blessing of God. Can we be satisfied from what is sown and reaped? Only in establishing confidence in the sufficiency of Christ's atonement can we ever know any of this. And therefore we act. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 And we must insist on these things because, oh, it is so easy to stray. 
It is so easy to say, because I'm doing this, I know I'm, I know I'm good. Because I'm doing this, I know my sins are forgiven. I'm doing this, I know that I'm receiving grace from God. Because that's tangible, and we live very tangible lives. But that's why Christ came in the flesh, so he could physically bear the burden of our sin, so that we no longer need these tangible means of grace. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. This is not something that keeps going. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Does the righteousness of God need further purification? You tell me. <laughs> if we have given, been given the righteousness of God in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ, do we need to purify that further? No, we don't. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. We must stop there. They, Paul and his followers, his disciples, so to speak, worked very hard so as to not put an obstacle in the way of people putting their faith in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. But when we look at churches around the nation, around the world, we see all sorts of obstacles being put in our way. Obstacles, things that we can put our trust, our faith in, to think that those things will help me we get the grace of God those things will help those are obstacles those are stumbling blocks because they keep us from putting our full attention on what Christ has done he was the one who was lifted up so that we could look at him and be healed that is what we are to do not to distract our gaze because what happened when Peter distracted his gaze he sunk when his, you know, as a teacher, you always ask for your, your students undivided attention. Christ requires our undivided attention. And traditions of men divide our attention. And I must give you a couple examples. I don't like calling out certain things, but there are some things because we see that this is insistent in the scriptures. You've heard of holy water that certain churches utilize, not just the Catholics, but various denominations utilize holy water. And there's a prayer that is supposed to be prayed by the priest who administers holy water to the people. He says, by this holy water and by your and by your precious blood, wash away all my sins, O Lord. 
That is a distraction and a deviation from the all-sufficient work of Christ. That is a stumbling block to our faith. This activity must be refused. For many, and I must give credit, for many they do it simply because they've always been told to do it. They don't necessarily know what it's doing or what it means. But we need to know. Another example, purgatory is defined as a place of expiatory purification. In other words, a place where any extra sins that were not confessed prior to death can be propitiated, can be appeased, can be taken away. This belief in purgatory distracts and bypasses the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And it must be anathema in our minds because it divides our attention. It says we can put our hope in something in addition to Jesus. 1 John 4. I'm going to read a few passages to you before we close. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 say in this is the love of god in this the love of god was made manifest among us that god sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins what he's saying is there is no merit in how you love god the only merit is in the fact that God loved you and sent Jesus to be your propitiation. He does not give you a myriad of ways where you can get more grace because you performed certain works. The grace has been established on the cross. It is locked. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. No further purification is necessary. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 27 and 28. I'm going to start with verse 20. Verse, well, in this chapter, he's talking about, he's, he is relating Christ's blood sacrifice to the sacrifices in the temple in the Old Testament. And he refers to these things that were done in the Old Testament as copies or shadows of things that would come. And in verses 27 and 28, the author says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. If there was any further need to deal with sin, why would he have said that? That one, man, 
dies once, and then right after that is judged as either righteous or unrighteous. There's no middle ground. It's very clear. And then after that, he says that Jesus is actually going to return again, not to deal with sin, because he's already dealt with sin. He doesn't have to deal with sin anymore. But rather, when he comes again, it is for the finality of our salvation, for the establishment of the eternal kingdom of God that will perfectly reflect the holiness and the will of God. We must be careful. These are just some examples of pharisaical tradition where we start putting stumbling blocks through traditions and means of grace and sacraments. These are ways that people can put obstacles in front of our faith that cause us to stumble on our way, on our journey to God because our minds are distracted by this over here and that over there. This will be a way of getting grace. That will be a way of getting grace. This will take away some of my sins. That will take away some of my sins. When the Scriptures are clear, the sins have already been all dealt with. That is good news. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That is good news. That traditions make less good. <laughs> It makes it less good. We think we're doing good by helping people through these various means of trying to give our life direction. But ultimately, at least over time, these things become hindrances to faith because those are the things that we look to for goodness, for grace, for forgiveness, for salvation, for justification, for purification, rather than what Jesus has already done. And it has already been stated in the actual word of God that it is sufficient, it is enough why else would Jesus have said it is finished when he was on the cross, breathing his last breath? It is finished. There is no more work that needs to be done to deal with sin. You don't need to do it anymore. I mean, even the Pharisees had a better reason to believe this stuff because Jesus hadn't died yet. But yet they even get rebuked because they were deviating from the word of God. We must only honor what is written on these pages. We do not honor the authority of the historical church. We honor it in the sense that we learn from it. But we do not honor it in the sense that it gets to tell me that I can do stuff that's not in this book. We don't honor the authority of the church whenever it tells us that we can live a certain way when the Bible doesn't say that we can do that. We do not listen to the church when the church tells us that we can achieve grace by some means that are not here in the Scriptures. We must pay attention to what is written in the Word of God because this is our only revelation from God. This is our revelation from God. He has told you already what He wants you to know. That is all you need to know. And that is how we must live. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. As you have received him by faith, go and walk in faith in the same sufficiency of Christ. Not trying to get more sufficiency, not trying to get more uh, purification, but going and serving him because you have put your faith in the one who has made you pure and has sanctified you by his grace. Let the word of God be enough. Search your heart, search your minds. Are you trying to merit favor with God by any other means? 
Repent. Turn back to the Word of God and what it has already said. Are you holding other people to, uh, to extra-biblical traditions? Because you just think it's better for them to live that way, even though the Bible doesn't talk about that. Then you need to reevaluate how you're performing your ministry of reconciliation in this world. Return to the Word of God. There's a lot here that you can use. You don't need your own stuff. You don't have to make your own curriculum. You already have one. <laughs> so let's look at the one that's been given to us. Here's the scope and the sequence. We have it. We have the curriculum laid out for us. All the lessons we need to teach the world. Let's learn it ourselves. Let's return to it ourselves. Let's give this to the world. Lord, I thank you for what you have given to us because you did not need to give us any of this. You are transcendent. If you didn't reveal yourself to mankind, we would have never known what came upon us. If you were to just pour out your wrath, we would have no one to blame. We would have no one to criticize. But you have chosen to reveal yourself in your ways to us because you love us and you have provided us with grace and mercy, good things that we get to take part in. I pray that our hope would be in the Lord. It is in the Lord Jesus' name I pray. Amen.